Hello, this is Dan Chagru, and welcome to the More Art Than Science podcast, where I explore the relationship between art and commerce by talking to artists, presenters, and performers about how they got their start and how they make ends meet. Welcome to episode 17 of the More Art Than Science podcast, where we widen the camera angle a bit to include our first novelist on the program, Carissa Broadbent. Carissa is the author of several books, including most recently the War of Lost Hearts trilogy, the conclusion of which, The Mother of Death and Dawn, drops on February 10th of 2022. Her books have earned her a fan base large enough that she recently quit her day job in tech marketing to concentrate on writing full time. Go Carissa. Carissa stopped by the More Art and Science home studios to share her thoughts about the creative process, how she's able to make a living as an author, and geeks out a bit by indulging my questions about what she calls the badass ladies in her novels. So, Carissa, welcome to the More Art Than Science podcast. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Maybe we can start with sort of Carissa growing up. Carissa as a, um, a young, a little girl, like, you know, elementary school or the, your first experiences or interest in writing. How did that come about? Yeah, so... I've always been very interested in writing. I don't want to use the term I've been interested in writing from a very young age because it's, but um, yeah, when I was in elementary school, I used to write like a lot of kind of dark stories. And um, I wrote my first like quote unquote novel when I was um, like 12, like 11. Um, it was short and very bad, but I was like very into that when I was in elementary and school and middle school. Um, and then when I got older in the internet, I was had more free reign on the internet. I was a part of this, um, it was a video game development community actually, and I published a story on there like in the blog section, like chapter by chapter, and that was like my first, there's elements of it in the books that I write today actually. Cool. So, so I was very into it and then, you know, high school and college and things got busy and I kind of fell out of it and then found my way back to it as an adult. So that first book was uh, uh, distributed, at least, I guess, through the, uh, as a product of the digital age. I mean, it's a blog and a video game platform, yeah? Mm -hmm. and, or no, actually, not the first one, the second one. But what was the first one written, what was it written on, just tech-wise? Oh, my God. Like, Windows 95. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> just uh, in my parents' bedroom. Okay. I mean, I was, I was like 11. And then just handed in as like a, on a piece of like papyrus uh, <laughs> yeah right I just okay. got my scribe over here to like yeah follow me around and tell the story no um yeah I just it was just for myself it wasn't even for like a school project or oh, anything okay. so all right and your were your folks supportive of this endeavor or yeah yeah, yeah they were I don't know though. now that I'm thinking of it I don't know how much they were they were of course supportive my parents are wonderful they mm -hmm. were very supportive but I don't remember them taking I don't know if they knew about it really so it's almost like a diary. Maybe. I don't know. I must have shared it with them at some point. There are actually two in there now that I'm thinking of it that I did uh, in that like 10 to 12 age range. So when you become huge and famous, it'll be like published as like Carissa's first books. It kills me. I don't know if they exist anywhere oh. anymore. Well, that would be sad. Yeah, I know. I know. Should have uploaded them to the cloud. I know. There, you know what? There's like a USB drive somewhere. And you know the USB drive is like, people listening cannot see the hand motion I'm making. But remember back in the day, they were like this. They were big. They right? were huge. Yeah, yeah, it was like 15 inches long. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay. So, and at that time, who were your influences? Like, who do you, or, or were there were there authors whom you were emulating? There must have been. I don't remember who it would have been specifically, like at that time. Or just in general, who were your earlier or or, or today? Well, I have too. a very I have a very um, clear moment. So my parents were. I'm the oldest, and as oldest children often are, I was the most sheltered of my my siblings, right? Because like parents get looser as the the kids get yeah so i wasn't really allowed to watch very much and i remember being 12 years old and my dad watching um the x-men movies the ones with um with hugh jackman and yeah yeah sort of the original movies i think for x-men anyway yeah 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 so xavier was uh that shakespearean actor yes Um, yes patrick stewart Stewart. and like yeah i have a soft spot to this day but Um, That was my first time like seeing a superhero movie and I was writing this like I would write like very um, Weighty stuff that was often influenced by what I was reading in school at the time So like I was writing like a school shooting novel or it was like dark It is dark, but I saw X-Men and I was like, oh my god, like this is freaking amazing So I turned my school shooting novel (laughs) into a superhero novel (laughs) Where the school is saved by the superhero? Or? No, no, the school shooting was the initial trauma that gave them superpowers. Oh, cool. But it was like, I didn't change anything about the beginning of the book. <laughs> so it like, yeah. just takes this like crazy left turn, <laughs> like off into superhero land. But yeah, they were very much just like a mishmash of whatever I was into at the time. And some of those things were movies and some were shows and some were books. Okay. So I, I'm curious because I, I, whatever reason I think of, a lot of what you do, even though I've read uh, some of it, and I know that it's classified, which I, I'm going to use air quotes classified because I hate the fact that we classify art, um, but you know, it's classified as fantasy. But when I talk to you, often we're talking, it seems like we're talking about sci-fi. I mean, I think of the X-Men as more sci-fi than fantasy, and I, and I spoiler alert, I know you're a Star Wars fan. We can talk about that too, but <laughs> that's sci-fi, right? I mean, it's got its elements of fantasy in there but it obviously takes well, yeah it takes place a long time ago but yet it's futuristic um at what point do you did you make that shift or do you think you did make the shift or is what you're doing more fantasy than sci-fi today um or is it called fantasy but still has like plenty of elements of sci-fi that's a good question i'm thinking about my answer because I, I have like multiple different directions i want to go <laughs> let's go to all of them right well okay First, I'm going to talk about genre. And I know, like, you and I have talked about this in the past. Um, I know that you don't like to classify art. So I'm very, I'm sure we'll get more into this, but I'm I'm a very business-minded person. And I'm very business-minded when it comes to my writing career. So um, genre, for me, and the way that you define it, is very helpful and something that we have to be very intuitive and understanding. So... um, The first thing that comes to mind when you talk about fantasy versus sci-fi is that there's much more that goes into those genres than where they're set. Mm -hmm. And like even um, Star Wars, for example, a lot of people who are writing Star Wars-esque books today Mm. don't even classify them as sci-fi. They classify them as space fantasy. Because Star Wars has, it's all fantasy tropes. You know, it's, it's... the force, the force is magic. Mm-hmm. There's magic. It's not Star Trek. Star Trek is sci-fi. Right. Uh, Star Wars is space fantasy. And you know what? I've always been a Star Wars girl and not really a Star Trek girl because okay. that stuff is boring to me. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, that that distinction, Star Wars and Star Trek, 
a very good way to make the point. Yeah, I get it. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it's like there's okay. all these nuances there, and mm-hmm. I've always been attracted to like, um, to like magic, and like I also don't. <laughs> I'm gonna make myself sound terrible. I don't like rules in what I write, and that is part of why I invent my own world instead of putting things in this world because mm-hmm. I don't want to have to research things about this world. Um, my so magic, yeah. So you don't like rules and you don't like research. It's too, yeah, uh, I don't okay. like those things. Okay. And you know what? I stand by well, it. <laughs> Fair enough. So that was probably when I started to like, I was always very into that in like media. Like, um, you know, millennial women will know. Um, witch was it called a witch there was like this cartoon like of like these fairy girls i was very into like the magical girl anime stuff and like and i was always very into like very angsty character driven stuff and that was what attracted me to x-men it was what attracted me to star wars Mm. um and all the superhero stuff too and those are the elements that like i very much draw on yeah okay so let's was that all three things by the way because th- I think you said there were three directions you wanted to go in. I heard at least two, maybe three. Uh, the third one is lost okay. to the, the other oh, now. Yeah. It's well, gone. We may or may not come back to that. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. Because the thing that I thought of, actually, as you were saying that, was um, uh, what you refer to as, I think, variously as the healthy uh, pinch of romance that accompanies your, your novels. Um, and, you know, I can I can think of the romance between Hugh Jackman and um, Kitty Pride, right, in uh, X-Men. Is it Kitty Pride? It is. No. Um, oh, God. Jean Grey. Oh, well, yes, I'm sorry. Yes, of course, absolutely, positively Jean Grey. But there's a little, I mean, so it's more of like a paternal relationship, I guess, with him and Kitty Pride, right? No, but, that was, um, that was Rogue. I'm going to have to edit this. What? No, <laughs> no. you have to stand behind, <laughs> okay. stand behind your failings in the okay. history of superheroes, Dan. <laughs> this is really awful and embarrassing because Wolverine was one of my favorites. Oh, um, okay. Hugh Jackman would be ashamed of you. Very much so. Uh, okay, yeah, no, I will stand by it. This will stand. <laughs> this will stand. All right, anyway, so, yeah, Wolverine and Jean Grey in the pantheon of, like, great uh, romantic relationships is not up there for me. Um, I love X-Men, um, but in the pantheon of great relationships is the obvious, maybe the more obvious one from Star Wars, you know, Han Solo and... Um, Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to say Carrie Fisher instead of Princess Leia, and but at least it's the same. At least it's still You're technically correct. correct. I accept yes. it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, the, so to what extent are those relationships driving what you're writing today, like or, or the, the way that those relationships are depicted, et cetera? Hmm. You're asking me a lot of questions I haven't like thought about before. Um, I don't know if they are. I mean, I was very into Han Solo. And Princess Leia is like classic, like to this day. It's yep. like, you know, um, and he's like a character archetype that has like stood the test of time. Like mm-hmm. you can find Han Solo in some variation in a million different books of all genres. I think a lot of my interest in romance and the way that I write it kind of came later. Um, it was always a strong element in everything I did before that. Was it more informed by personal experience or? Not really. Uh, just, just other books and movies than sort of the, well, I'm going to call it the original great one, Han and Leia, but. Oh, okay. Wait a minute. I just had like a, so I'm not very, um, I don't know how unique this is. You probably know better than me because you're always talking to other, to other creatives, right? I'm often not very conscious about where my influences are coming from. It's like, I know it when I see it, mm. but 
I had this moment recently where um, I went to see Howl's Moving Castle in theaters. Okay. Um, the Studio Ghibli movie. Are you familiar? No. But, but so, go on, yeah. Hayao Miyazaki, who did Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke and all of these like great Japanese animated movies. Okay. Um, and they all came out in kind of like the early 2000s or like 90s, early 2000s-ish. Mm. And a little bit later than that when they became big here. So I remember seeing Howl's Moving Castle when I was 12, probably. And just being like, oh my God, like it just blew my mind completely. I was like, this is like the best thing that I've ever seen. And then I only very recently saw it again after not having seen it for a few years in theaters. And as I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh my God, this just explains so much. Like, because it's like, you know, Howl is like, like the male lead is like this, this wizard who's like very eccentric and like, but there's also like this tragic like backstory. The plot makes no sense. It's a great movie. It's beautiful. But that is definitely up there. And I think there's a lot of those little moments that kind of collectively. They coalesce into yeah. and inform your writing. Okay, very cool. Um, I want to come back to you being in a theater recently because we're in, we are still, God willing, at the end of this pandemic. But uh, what, <laughs> I'm curious, like at what point were, were you allowing yourself to go back to a theater? But that's, I think a little bit of a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fantasy, um, the pinch of romance, and then the other thing that you'll you'll oft, I'll often you know hear you sort of describe yourself as is you know someone who writes about badass heroines, um, and it, so similar question, you know, is there a specific heroine that you have in mind, or is it the same thing? It's just a coalescing many of the the heroines that you've come across through theater writing, etc. Yeah, absolutely. It's Definitely a lot of different places. I will say Miyazaki's movies, who I just referenced, his heroines are always really well formed and like very, um, they're very strong. But what I like about his characters and my favorite female characters is that they're not, there was this trend in like the 2000s of like, you know, badass female characters. But they were always badass in like a very masculine way. It was like they were kind of taking, um, male action hero and like making it a woman and being yeah. like, oh, feminism, we did it. <laughs> um, but what I really like are characters who draw strength from what we traditionally as a society see as feminine qualities. Um, and I don't even think that we should necessarily see those qualities as quote unquote feminine qualities. So for example, um, you know, kindness or, or courage or like strength of heart, like we see those as feminine qualities and um, during that early wave of like badass women, it was like those things were seen as weak. Yeah. So they were seen as not something that, that a female character can have and still be like a badass. And that also came out in terms of like how they had romantic relationships, if at all. Like having a romantic relationship does not make a character weaker. Right. So I like to find um, characters who are like very strong, but part of that strength is also how they interact with other characters and how they interact like with themselves. Okay, and up to and including romantic relationships. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, and I'm curious now um, if we were to compare a, a heroine from X-Men like Storm to a heroine from the more modern take, uh, in, just in terms of the movies, uh, like Black Widow, like does that fit the, the arc that you were just describing? In other words, Storm is sort of like let's force a woman into a masculine hero image whereas black widow 
is more sensitive or does Black Widow not quite get there? I think that they're getting better with it. You know, like Marvel has like, I love Marvel movies. Um, so I'm not making any kind of a grand statement about it, but I don't think it's anything controversial to say that Marvel does not do female characters very well. Like, I mean, they had their first female led movie after like 20 of them, like what, two years ago? Fair enough, yep. And they didn't even bother to come up with a good, good name. I mean, Ms. Yeah. Ms. Marvel. Captain Marvel, <laughs> Were they yeah. trying at that point? Yeah. But, but I do think that they like in Captain Marvel, I enjoyed it. I didn't love it. But even that, they, they acknowledge it. You know, they... they, Because all the characters are always telling her she's too emotional, right? Mm. And, like, her character arc is realizing that her emotions is not, like, a negative thing. So it is, like, this very meta-feminist, like, kind of commentary mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're starting to see more uh, media uh, recognize that, which okay. I'm all in favor of. Okay. But, but, but what about Black Widow? I thought Black Widow was good. The movie standalone, but the character. I mean, so Black Widow and um, uh, Hawk, Hawkeye, is that a decent portrayal that like is fair to, you know, or modern or accurate in terms of like or good, entertaining even. So Hawk, well, what I like, they're friends. You know, they yeah. they have like a strong friendship. Right. Um. Black Widow never had like a romantic relationship, really. Okay. Um, and I think she's kind of a poor example because um, her character got kind of like, you know, she's in all these other movies that all these different people have written and directed. And it seems like every single person had like a very different take on what kind of character she was supposed to be. Mm. So I get Scarlett Johansson being a little bit ticked off about that by the time she got her solo right. movie. Right. Because her character had just been like batted around. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example of someone who like really illustrates what I'm thinking of here. I recently watched um, Arcane. Are you familiar with Arcane? No. It's like really, really good. I wouldn't expect it's it's this animated show that's on Netflix. Okay. That's based on like the League of Legends world, which I am not a League of Legends player, so I was not expecting to love this. But it's excellent, really, really beautiful, and the character writing is just like extremely nuanced across the board and um is it appropriate for younger audiences <laughs> just asking selfishly uh maybe <laughs> okay let me get back to you well, let me good. let me think yeah. on it and i'll let you know yeah. i can always look up the rating yeah he would enjoy it though yeah yeah okay um all right cool so that I, I, that was a total tangent only because i'm also very much interested in marvel um, and of course, Star Wars. When we were talking about genres, you were talking about how genres can be useful in promotion, which I get for sure. Um, I think part of what you were saying was like, for that reason, you're you don't really mind being classified because if you're classified, then I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm guessing then it's easier to market or absolutely. get your stuff. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> okay. absolutely. Okay, uh, fair enough. So, so. Speaking of that, the, um, the distribution um, and the promotion, from what I understand, last I spoke to you, you were purely digital, yes, in terms of distribution? I have print books available, um, and I always have. I've okay, always had okay. like paperbacks and um, available, but you are completely right that like most of my money, not just most, I mean the vast majority of my money comes from uh, digital sales. Okay. It's only recently that I've started to make more on physical sales because I have like fans, you know, like I have like super fans who yeah. like, and even those people, they read it digitally first 
say, oh my fucking God, I love this. Can I swear? Okay. Um, I love this book. <laughs> and then they go and buy all the hard copies and the hard covers and the signed special editions and all that nice. stuff. When you say you're making more, you don't mean more than you are on digital. You're saying you're making more relative how what you used yeah. to make on paper in real life. Yeah, it's no no competition, and I also okay. can't get into bookstores. So, right. So you're, you the stuff you're selling that's not digital is coming. You're shipping directly from your home or your they get it from distribution center. Yeah, they get it from Amazon. You can get it from Barnes and Noble oh, online, oh. but bookstores will. Typically, unless I like super take off and then all these people are asking them for my sure. books, yeah. um, they won't stock my books. Right. Can, would Amazon and, did you mention Barnes and Noble? Is that the other? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Would they stock uh, signed copies? Do you keep signed copies with them? If, you know, is that an option on, oh, as a no. digital consumer? Okay. No, so, not digitally, because it's it, a whole like, yeah, Yeah. so I have like an Etsy shop, um, and the only reason I use Etsy is because I want to have to worry about as little as possible mm -hmm. on like the sales front sure. side. Yeah. Um, so I have an Etsy shop, and the people who are usually enthusiastic enough to want a signed copy are usually following me on social media and stuff anyway, so they know So you just tell them when it. it's there, and they... Yeah, they exactly. Go. Okay, cool. So I'm, digitally, I'm exclusive to Amazon. Oh, ah, okay. Um, my hardcovers not my paperbacks, um, are available at like Books A Million and um, Barnes and Noble and Amazon and just like, cause there's a bigger network that yep. they go to, yep. but digitally I'm, I am exclusive to Amazon. And how did, how did you come to make that decision or was it not, <laughs> were you not able to make the decision? I mean, is that like, like you're either exclusive or not on Amazon? It is, that's a huge decision. So I'm going to, I'm going to get geeky. Go for a minute here. Okay. So independent authors have a choice to enroll in something called KDP Select. Um, and that means that... Kindle Direct Publishing Direct? No, it's Kindle... So Kindle Direct Publishing, Sorry. at risk of um, complicating this further, and it is uh, confusing because the terms all sound very similar. Um, that's just Amazon's whole independent publishing thing. So there are lots of customers lots of indie authors who are in KDP, because you have to be, um, who are not exclusive to Amazon. Okay. But Amazon also has a program called Select, which allows you to be in the Kindle Unlimited program. Oh. You have to be exclusive to them in order to be a part of this program. And that to means- To be a part of Unlimited, you have to be exclusive. Okay, gotcha. Exactly. So Kindle Unlimited, for folks who don't know, is basically like, Netflix for books, so people pay $10 a month or whatever it is, and um, they can read any book in the Kindle Unlimited library. Um, this is like a very controversial topic among indie authors. Like whether you decide to go wide, which is what people call it when they're with all of the digital distribution platforms, or if you decide to go into KU. Ah, okay. I would have guessed that KU was wide, but yeah, okay, I, I understand what you're saying. Right, I think, I think they mean wide, in like wide distribution. N number of distributors, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because yep. it's not as if Kindle Unlimited is not wide. There's a lot of people, I, I exactly. imagine, a big audience there, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, okay so what, once you're in Kindle Unlimited, uh, since it's an all-you-can-eat, and if we geek out even more, we'll call it an ELA for consumers, Enterprise License Agreement, so all-you-can-eat. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, how is your pay determined? Because yeah, go ahead. Yep. It is per page read. So they, I think originally, um, back in like, I was not in indie publishing at this time, 
when they debuted the program, it was like a flat rate. Um, but then people started gaming the system and like publishing a lot of super, super short books. <laughs> so they changed it to be page reads, which yeah. actually is great for me because I write really long books. <laughs> so it works out for me. Yeah. And then the rate um, changes a little bit every month because they basically have like this giant pool of money and they divvy it up by however many page reads there are in that particular month. That's so absolutely genius on their part. So that they have like a basically a cap on their costs. If a lot of people just happen to read one month, then everybody who's creating is getting a little bit less per page. Yeah, is that? More or less, yeah. yeah. And the, the fund does change. Like it's not the same every single month. Okay. I don't know what exactly determines. Um, there are lots of people who do, and I probably should know, but. Um, it's not just whether or not Bezos decided to go to space that month. Yeah. Don't even get me started, but yeah, Amazon owns my soul, but I still have my personal opinions, <laughs> but, but yeah, so right now it is about, um, 0.0045, like a little less than half a cent a page. Not bad. I mean, it's not per, bad at per all. Page. Yeah. Because we're, so in the course of the podcast, we're learning that, um, it's 0.0008 cents per listen. To a song, and if you think about you know how long it takes to read a page, it's probably less than three and a half minutes. <laughs> I was I heard that on this podcast because I'm not like in you know up yeah. on the music world or whatever. But I was shocked when I heard that. That is so low. It's low. I, I think that's about as low as it gets. So if the person has composed it, it gets a little bit higher. Um, and uh, and then there are also varying levels of deals. It depends also on the, the demographic that the person is reaching, um, and sadly but at least last i've heard which is probably more than six months ago but you know well you, i'm sure you know from the advertising world that the demographic that pays the most is the young male demographic because they tend to buy more stuff mm. um so anyway so yeah so it's but it, it, i think point point zero 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 eight is is about as low as it gets it gets higher if the person who's performing has written the song mm -hmm. in your case you're obviously writing the content so it would make sense that you were least you should make more money so I'm glad that you are okay so so per page 0 0.0045 that's and then you you're getting um, you know in your particular case because you're the books you're writing are long you're doing okay with yeah this model. it's yeah. um I actually think it is the reverse for most authors but for me I think I make more per a full Kindle Unlimited read than I do if someone were to buy the ebook, because you can still buy my ebooks outright. Mm. You know, like if you're not a Kindle Unlimited user, you just sure. buy them for three ninety nine or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my books are more than a thousand pages in Kindle pages. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Actually, now that you say that, if if somebody is somebody's eyes are going and they happen to use bigger font, do they adjust for that? No. It's they still um, this number of times you swipe through a page, like even if I'm like using giant print. Yeah, how they define a page, they're very particular about it okay. because they want to avoid people being able to game it with formatting and stuff like that. So yeah. I think it's like a certain number of words or okay. something. Like my books are over a thousand Kindle Unlimited pages, um, but they're not like a thousand pages in a paperback book. Right. So. Yeah, okay. Okay, so that's distribution and you've chosen to go uh, Amazon exclusive for the digital only, which I guess it's, we should be thankful. Um, creators, that is, that you're still allowed to sell the um, uh, atomized books, <laughs> struggling for a term, paper books on other platforms. So mm -hmm. being Kindle exclusive 
I'm sorry, Amazon exclusive only means that you, you digitally have to be exclusive, which is a good thing. Um, okay, and then in terms, so, so that's distribution. Then in terms of promotion, um, to what extent do you think uh, like a Goodreads is, is helping you out versus like you having to, or not that it's necessarily a burden, but post to like the platforms that you're on. And then I want to talk about platforms that you're on. You know, how many people are, have read your first two books and then like when the third one comes out, they see that it's available because they get a push notification from Goodreads and you don't have to actually do anything or some other platform. Yeah. Um, I have been very fortunate in that um, organic marketing has been like very kind to me, um, namely word of mouth. So a lot of that has happened on Goodreads. A lot of it has happened on Instagram or Twitter, like books, book communities on mm. those platforms. Um, Goodreads is pretty, pretty great for like the exact reason that you've said. I know a lot of authors have a very love-hate relationship with Goodreads. Um, but in my opinion, any place that gives us some level of organic reach is good. <laughs> in organic, by that you just mean um, people on Goodreads who have left a review, for example, or even just starred a book that you've written and then through that other people discover the book. Yeah, exactly. Okay. People reviewing and talking about it on, on those platforms has been really huge for me. Side note is, as a consumer of books, do you find Goodreads helpful? I mean, I, I use it. Um, I use it mostly to keep track of what I'm reading and like keep track of my TBR lists and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I do use it for discovery sometimes. Like if a friend of mine posts a review of something and I'm like, oh, that has like a pretty cover and a cool description and I'm going to read that next. Okay. So, so yeah, probably. Works for discovery. Sure. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. And then in terms of the, the posting that you have to or do do in order to let people know that you've got stuff coming out. What, what are the platforms that you prefer? Um, which ones are more effective? So just in terms of like letting people know that stuff exists, um, like people who are already my readers, that is actually pretty easy because Amazon does it. And um, through something other than Goodreads or? Through, even through just the Kindle app, like okay. you might've gotten, I don't know if you're a Kindle reader. Yes. But sometimes you might get notifications that are like an author that you've read so and so yep. has a book out blah blah yep. blah so they give you a little bit of that like <laughs> that boost mm -hmm. but in terms of like engaging with people instagram i do very well on instagram um twitter uh a little bit less so but i kind of like that because twitter can be like really negative so i liked that i have like 200 followers and they're all nice to me <laughs> <laughs> it, when you say less so than instagram it, but besides with the comment you just made, are we talking about like an order of magnitude less follow followers or like half or like? Oh yeah, way less. I have like 1500 followers on Instagram right now, which is still pretty low, you know, comparatively. Um, but what I like about the people I interact with on Instagram is that they are very active. Like all of my like biggest fans um, are very into Instagram. The big thing in the book world now is also TikTok. Um, yeah. It sells books like crazy, yeah. but I am a little scared of it. It's like very intimidating to me. It seems like a very involved type of content to make. So I got to do it, but I'm putting it off. So you're not on it at all right now. I am on it and I have one video that has done quite well for my one video, Cool. but it just seems like a lot of work. Yeah. It's, well, it, I mean, you have to make a video, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. that's for, it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of courage. <laughs> 
You have to put yourself out there in a way that you don't. I mean, I mean, I suppose you can edit the video fine, but like your, it's all, it's your voice, your visage, your the words you're using. Yeah. Whereas Twitter is only one of those things. Instagram is maybe two of those things, but could just be one. I am not. That's not difficult for me, really. Um, okay. Like on Instagram, I am frequently like talking to the camera. Okay. Um, and doing lives and all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, a lot of authors have complained about that, especially with TikTok becoming so big because, you know, we're authors. Like most of us are very introverted and like not a lot. I have a lot of friends who just don't even like to put pictures of themselves anywhere. You know, sure. they're very, so they're kind of like, oh my God, I have to like go perform some like skits or whatever. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. my hard line in the sand is I will not do the lip syncing thing. <laughs> I'll, I'll do, here's a video of my book. Here's all the tropes that are in it. Like here's, you know, I'll talk to a camera. I'm not going to lip sync. I just won't do it. <laughs> fair, fair, fair enough. But I'm curious, what, what is the difference between like a, you know, Insta Live versus a TikTok? Like, because you were saying, I mean, TikTok does feel more in intimidating to you. How, and how, how does that manifest itself or why is it? Yeah, this is a great, I've been asking myself this question. Um, it's, it's not putting myself out there. That's the scary thing. It's like, I have to like think of what the video is going to be. And then I have to create it. When I'm on Instagram and I'm talking to the camera, I'm just talking about whatever's on my mind, you know? Well, but why when can't I, you do that with TikTok? I can. I don't know if people will like it. But most of the TikTok videos are like... So it's the, it's the, it's the fact that the audience is more random and not your own, maybe, that makes it more difficult? It's more like the type of videos that perform well on TikTok for the most part are like, um, like it's a very specific kind of content. So you, um, you have to like, you know, here's my book and you have to like do like a cool camera angle or something and then have all the tropes that are in it pop. Like it's, the video has to be about something. And when I'm on Instagram, I just like talk about whatever i kind of ramble is, is it not possible though that like whatever you do or whatever whoever is like becoming new on TikTok now can just shape that and change it that is absolutely true and i very well may if i were to go home right now actually i'm giving myself homework on your behalf <laughs> if i were to go home right now and just ramble at a camera and like put that on TikTok, it might very well do fine you know yeah. like that might and I guarantee it would be better than what I'm doing now, which is nothing. Okay. So, okay. so yeah, so imperfect. So perfect may be the enemy of the good in this case. And you're, you're, it is you're, always the truth. Always. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. And then, okay, as long as we're on video, so what about YouTube? Do you do YouTube as well for promotion? No. Okay. And is that just because nobody in books does that or? A um, few reasons. So BookTube is definitely a thing. Like YouTubers who talk about books. Yeah. But I have noticed that YouTubers who talk about books are very traditionally published focused. Like there's not really much of an indie author scene there. Um, like as far as I know, nobody has ever talked about my books on YouTube, really. Um, so it's more, of a, it's more of a second or whatever third party than it is like the creator themselves talking about their stuff yes, in, on BookTube. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's an important caveat that I should be saying about all of this stuff is I do social media. Um, I do it because I enjoy it and also because it is it is useful from a marketing perspective. But I could do I could be like a social media 
amazing, post every single day, whatever, do everything that the algorithms want me to do. And whatever I do is never going to be even a fraction as effective at selling books as having other people who like my books talking to other readers about how awesome my books are. Yeah. And that's, that's where my career came from. Right. Uh, that, that's, I think, probably for the best. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. 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 That's, and, and, well, and, and kudos for getting that, to getting, to getting there, basically. Okay, cool. So, so the last, I guess, promotion piece I want to talk about was newsletter. Because I, I did notice on your website that you know, you, one can sign up for a newsletter. Is that still a thing or is that just a vestige from like, you know, some last lost decade <laughs> or, you know, are you still writing two of those a month or whatever? Yeah. So that's a, I was just having a conversation with an author friend about this topic yesterday. Authors, especially indie authors swear by newsletters because they're a very flexible promotional tool and because you own it. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as like having an Instagram following and then meta or whatever the hell they're called makes a change and suddenly you don't you can't contact your audience anymore right um so yeah and i do it because of that and then we also do newsletter swaps and like that's a that's how we we promote among each other and cross pollinate with all of our audiences together but i do find my biggest fans are like women in their 20s and I have noticed that my biggest fans are not really into my newsletter. They are mostly communicating with me on Instagram okay. or on Twitter. So I do it and I'm not gonna stop doing it anytime soon, but I do think, I think they're around to stay, but their efficiency or efficacy, I should say, at actually communicating with your biggest fans, depending on what that demographic is, um, is definitely different than it was 10 years ago. Okay. and. By that, you at least part when you say it's not the best way to communicate with your biggest fans, it's the best way to communicate with your like medium fans or how, like the oh, people sorry, who are I like, should, no, yeah, I should be clearer. So, um, I don't change anything about what I put in my newsletter based yeah. on that kind of casual observation, yeah, it's just kind of something I've anecdotally noticed. Like, I get people responding to my newsletter every time I send one out, and I do have some really big fans who primarily get updates from me from my newsletter but I've noticed that they're they tend to be older than like my median age of typical reader and it just is like it's a different crowd like it's a slightly different subset of my audience yeah okay it's a different demo okay yeah and then geeky question for the marketing folks out there so what what do you use to uh, distribute the, the newsletter itself what platform I use MailerLite right now MailerLite MailerLite okay all right, cool. So, so now I'm curious. So we, we, we talked a little bit about musicians, right? The Spotify pay, the payments and all that. And one of the things that I'm curious about is, um, you know, most of the musicians with whom I speak um, will lament the fact that they're not making much money on Spotify um, and they're making up for that at least pre-pandemic and beginning to a little bit now as we crawl out of this pandemic um, through live shows, right? And um, I'm imagining that you don't, especially as a digital mostly author, you know, there's very little opportunity for you to do a reading, for example. And, and then even if you were doing readings, like you're not necessarily, very few authors are being paid to do readings. You would do a reading to promote a book in a bookstore, mm-hmm. which you're not at yet, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, that, that I'm sort of answering one part of the question, but what else do you sort of see as being different to the extent that you're thinking about other <laughs> artists other than authors 
in terms of like how technology is affecting you as a creator and your ability to make a living as a creator. And, and, and actually, let me, let me expand it because, it, because I, the other reason I'm asking is because I know that you enjoy doing visual art. And I, from my perspective, which is very limited, even more limited when it comes to visual art, that's the hardest nut to crack. Like, how does a visual artist make money in a digital age where, you know, copies are uh, free to make? And I, you know, we don't have to, uh, probably for to everyone's relief, we won't talk about NFTs in this case, but like, <laughs> well, we could, but, you know, is there any other way than NFT to make money as a visual artist? And then, yeah, if you have comments about musicians and like, is there some sort of corollary to like the live performance? Because that's where the musicians are making their money, right? Wrong or indifferent, right? And you don't have that opportunity. L luckily, you're making more, it sounds like, or a distributor is making more per page than a musician is per listen. Um, but you don't, you, there's like a whole revenue stream that's shut down to you. So how, how does one approach that? So, all right, I'm going to start with, I once again have a lot of thoughts. I'm going to start with being an author and how the evolution of the digital world has affected our livelihood. So I find it interesting that you say that in the musician world, most musicians feel very negatively about how technology has affected the way that they make a living. I do not find that to be the case mm. with authors at all, mm. especially with indie authors, because it has enabled us to have this job. Like we literally would not be here if the digital world had not become what it is today. Mm -hmm. So we have a very different perspective on that. We do think a lot about how to monetize things to the best of our ability. So first of all, I will say that we're very fortunate that, um, you know, I make money on books, which I think is a big difference between musicians because it seems like musicians struggle to make money on albums. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. On like the actual yeah. the thing, um, which, really sucks and is not at all how it should be. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's ridiculous to me. But you know, I make between three and four dollars on a book sale, yep. you know, or a book read through. And that stacks up when you're selling thousands of books a month. So, um, so it, that's, you know, a big income stream right there. And I think that no matter what I do, my primary income stream will be books. Yeah. The difference is that I have to produce a lot of them. So I'm trying now that I'm full time, primarily full time to be able to build up that backlist. And the nice thing about books is that they're an evergreen uh, resource. And that's also especially true for me because I don't write to, um, I'm getting, I'm getting geeky here with marketing terms. So there are authors who kind of write to trend and there's authors that write to market. Mm. Pretty much every successful author writes to market, including myself. Um, and that means that you're aware of what the market wants. You're keeping an eye on trends. You're keeping an eye on what people like about books, what you like about books as a reader. And you're making sure that you're giving readers that in the books that you produce. Sorry, to, to just to clarify, when you say, so writing to trends versus writing to market, uh, are you saying as, as in like the, the market has chosen this like trend X as the one that's more popular and therefore I'm going to write to that trend or something different? Or so I look at them as two separate categories. Yeah. Writing to market is like making sure that there's a market for what you're writing and that you're able to describe what you're writing to that market in a way that makes them amenable to buying it. Mm -hmm. Writing to trend is 
kind of what you just described. Here's an example. In urban fantasy, urban fantasy is like fantasy that takes place in this world. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. In the urban fantasy world, there was like six months where like everyone was really into like magical prisons. Like it was like, (laughs) like magical prisons were a very big deal. And these authors who are able to write like really, really fast, Mm. um, you can write a book about a magical prison and just capitalize on that wave when it's happening. And I say this with absolutely zero judgment. It's just a business model decision. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all trying to make a living out here. Sure. Great. But the downside is that you'll make a crap ton of money when magical prisons are a big thing. But then in six months, nobody cares about magical prisons anymore. And that Mm -hmm. was a trend. You're going to stop making money off of that backlist. Okay. Now, if you're lucky, magical prisons will become a thing again in like four years. And then you can dust it off and re... Yeah. But it's kind of like there's not a ton of longevity. Yeah. So you're kind of making a lot more money when you strike when the iron is hot, but you have to juggle those balls later on. Yeah. And then the distinction between that and market, because that sounds a lot like market to me. I'm sorry. But what is... Go ahead. I totally get where you're coming from. Market is... The distinction is that it's a little longer term. Okay. So... I write romantic fantasy. I know my audience extremely well. I know what they're into. I know what kind of tropes that they like and what makes them like really, really like a book. I know because I am one of those people. Right. So okay. it's easy Good. for me to do that. Yeah. It's longer term than a specific plot element that everyone is very into. Okay. So an example might be like Beauty and the Beast retellings were very big a couple of years ago, but Beauty and the Beast retellings are also like classic. Hmm. Like maybe they're not as popular today as they were in 2018, but you can bet that they are coming back soon. Right. And even now, everyone loves a Beauty and the Beast retelling. Sure. Okay. So to me, that's the distinction between writing to market and writing to trend. Yeah. I mean, would it be fair to say that writing to market is in some way, shape or form writing to like classical mythology? Meaning, like, you know, because class, we, we know classical mythology is going to come back, like, whichever of the stories, like, it'll, it's going to have another day, like, in whether it's five years or a decade, or whereas trend is maybe something, I mean, I think it, yeah. That's a great point, actually. So I was talking, the friend of mine, I actually cannot take credit from, for writing to market versus writing to trend because a good friend of mine, uh, Miranda Honfleur, who is a much more successful author than me, uh, we were talking about this at a conference not that long ago and conferences source of income mm, not for me okay <laughs> but <laughs> I, I actually as you get bigger you probably book, are getting bookmark there bookmark there i'll yeah, come okay, back okay. i'll come back to that actually but yeah she was talking about that so i'm a very intuitive person um like even you know in in marketing working in tech like a lot of the decisions i made were not there were gut decisions that I would then validate with data versus being data-driven. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like It's just the kind of person that I am. Mm-hmm. So I know intuitively when something has an X factor, like I knew it when I wrote Daughter of No Worlds, I felt like this has like it, like it has like an X factor, but I can't always put a name to it. But I was talking to a friend of mine um, about this thing where I was like, I don't, like, I know it when I see it. I know it when I see it in something else, in my own books. I just know it. But I can't, like, label it. 
And she mentioned that there are certain stories that are just like classic. So like Daughter of No Worlds is like like a slave story, like a, a slave coming into power story. Mm. And we see those stories all the time, like Gladiator, like like these are like classic stories, you know? And you have that that character coming from a position of extreme oppression. And people connect with those kinds of arcs. Mm. So I don't think you're far off. I mean, mm. not necessarily specific mythologies, right. but I think there are like stories that we connect with on a human level. Yeah, that are sort of bound to come back. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas magical prisons, prisons may or may not come back. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. I hear you. So, so you mentioned there um, your day job in tech, um, and I think you said something like you more or less have been able to quit, which I was very happy to hear about, and you know, congratulations on that. Can you talk about like the tipping point? I mean, so, and I, I think I mean in terms of um, if someone is coming up now, like, do you think they would have to follow the same arc that you followed in terms of, uh, you know, you you've got three books on the market, you've got at least four to your name, one you've taken off the market or, or whatever. So in other words, you you had to you needed some years to build up to a place where you can sort of, you know, focus full time. Um, is that, is it, do you think it would be easier if you were starting right now to just purely write or would many authors have to follow a similar arc, meaning like, you know, do something in their day job to pay the bills while they write, you know, between five and nine in the morning or whatever? Yeah. Um, so my career being successful is still relatively young. (laughs) So, so, um, I do think that everyone takes a very different path. I have lots of author friends um, who have had very different paths than me. And if there are very active indie author circles where people talk a lot about like what makes a successful indie career. And I'm always hesitant to give blanket advice because my path has been extremely different than a lot of the things that people advise in the greater indie community. Okay. They move a lot faster than I do. Um, and they also have a little bit lost longevity. Like the fact that I was able to make, now to be fair, I, I took a major pay cut, you know, but the fact that I've been able to make as much money as I make with two books out that were released a year apart from each other is like unheard of in indie world, you know? So I really think so that- you, the, Part of you wants to say, don't try this at home. It sounds like you're saying, or- No, no uh, though, I, okay. I don't, I think, People can definitely do it. I think that, um, yeah, I think the opposite of that, actually. Okay, I think okay. it's, it's people who are looking at indie authoring and are hearing all of this advice about, like, rapid releasing and, like, I mean, because there are authors who are, like, at this conference I was at, lots of outrageously successful independent authors. And a lot of them are talking about wanting to, quote, unquote, slow down and only release four books a year instead of the <laughs> eight books a year that they were doing. Before. Like, that's that's what it's like out there. Yeah. Um, so there are lots of very different ways to be successful. But I think that the number one thing that you have to do is make sure that you understand the market extremely well and that you write a really fucking good book for that market. Not that I'm saying that my book is like the best book ever. Like, yeah. it's not. It has flaws uh, in everything. Um, but something about it really spoke to like a audience that just loved it. Yeah. And that's where you get the longevity from. 
So I, I, I can empathize with the desire to not maybe give advice and yeah, but maybe would have, I think the, the answer is more sort of, here's what is about what's working for you or has worked, uh, which, is, which is more than fair. Um, and so we, we did put a pin in the conference discussion. So oh, yes. is this a conference where the attendees are paying some fee to attend and then, and you were a speaker, I assume, with the, no, you weren't a speaker, okay. No, so the, the conference I went to was the 20 books to 50K conference. 20 books to 50K is um, one of the biggest, like, how do, what would I even call it? Like a group, I guess, of independent authors. Um, and actually in the name that that describes exactly what I was talking about, like yeah. like this this idea that you should try to create as big of a backlist as possible as fast as you can mm -hmm. in order to build a sustainable income off of that, yep. which is a tried and true thing. And it's like, great if you can make it work for you. Um, so I was an attendee. But, I was but that's 50, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's 50K in aggregate. Yes. I mean, <laughs> you have to. And so, so I guess, first of all, just to clarify, so you. The idea is that you have to write 20 books in order to make 50K? Well, the original, the original meaning of the name was that the founder, um, Michael Anderle, who is now making much more than 50K a year, <laughs> and he originally started the project as a way of being like, he published a couple of books and he was like, realized that all of his books made roughly, I'm not doing math in my head right now, but it was like $7 a day in royalties or something, okay. right? So he was like, oh, well, if yeah. I were to write 20 books, then I would be making $50,000 a year, which is okay. enough for me to move to, I think he wanted to move to the Philippines or something. Okay. And like, yeah. so that was his, that was his original experiment. Okay. Obviously he went way above and beyond that. Right. And that's not like what people are aiming for in this group now. It's just what it's called. But it's, yeah, that does actually answer one other question. So, so it is 50K a year as opposed to like, if you write 20 books, then like you can make 50K over however long it took you to make those 50, those 50 books. He's saying like, if you have a catalog of 50 books, then you can make 50K a year based on this, the, the math that he had at the time, which was he was making seven bucks, a, seven bucks a day per book. So 20, 140, whatever. So, you know, 140 times seven or no, 140 times 365. Yeah, I, I like pulled seven whatever, out of my yeah. butt. I don't know well, if okay. it was so actually seven, it was. but, but that, <laughs> whatever it that's was. That's the general idea. That's the <laughs> Exactly, the right. That was okay. his experiment. Um, but to be clear, it's not like this group is actually about writing 20 books specifically and making $50,000 specifically a year. It's yeah, just, yeah. that's just what it turned into. It's now yeah. a massive group of independent authors. But, but the idea behind the name is that uh, essentially um, quantity, to some extent, quantity of books is going to uh, correlate or a reason or cause your have a direct co correlation with your uh, salary or the Absolutely. amount of money you're okay. Mm -hmm. okay which is more, more or less what you were saying earlier like you know, many authors are writing whatever for eight writing eight and wishing they could only write four and still survive yeah. whereas you've been lucky enough to write one or two a year of course but then we have taken into account that you, well you had a day job so you didn't have to write more um but of course, also it was more difficult to write more because we had day jobs. So it's yeah. It's, I don't know how I did it. I right. I don't. I'm still like so stressed out all the time, <laughs> and I, <laughs> you know, like now I look yeah. back and I'm like, oh my god, I, I beat myself up so much about not writing faster or not getting the books done faster, and now I look back and I'm like, man, I was writing. I was working like 65 hours a week, like on top of that. Yeah. How did I do that? Yeah. I don't know. Side note. 
so how many months have you been free of the of the extra full-time burden and how has it affected your ability to create I mean massive I mean just insane okay. um, so I'm counting from October I technically left at the end of August but then I got married and went on a honeymoon and all that stuff so it was like October by the time I so got back honeymoon is allowed I think for a marriage I would say so yeah. I would say so so October I am a very process oriented person and a very routine oriented person. So it did take me a few weeks to kind of trial and error what my, my routine was going to be mm -hmm. um, when I was slower. But once I hit my stride, oh my God. I mean, Mother of Death and Dawn, which is the book that's coming out on February 10th. Um, it is a hundred, well, it, the draft was 205,000 words long. And I wrote that I had 30,000 words written in October. So, and then I finished the draft. Oh my God. I finished the draft before Thanksgiving weekend. Wow. So yeah, it's a lot faster, <laughs> a lot faster. <laughs> okay. So you finished the draft and then, and then the last couple of months, you, you haven't started a new one yet. Right. So, I need to so. outline. I'm going to be in outlining okay. mode um, for the rest of January. And then I'm hoping to put pen to paper on February 1st for the new series. I'm for some reason glad that you're not starting a new book yet. I don't write wrong or indifferent. But, but, but so the bulk of the, the work that you have to do now is in editing, I assume, or interacting with an editor uh, for, the, for this third book? Or is it ready to, is it like galley or it's done or man it's, it's done. done oh wow yeah it's um well it's at the proofreaders right now but yeah what my process looks like is it's changed a lot um because i optimize constantly so i now plan heavily i plan heavily before i start a book um and then i draft 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 and then when the draft is done i read through the whole book hopefully because i've planned so much i don't have to do structural revisions mm which I found I did not have to do with this book, but the book before that, we were working together at the time yeah. and you may have remembered yeah. what a mess I was. <laughs> I did, and it was awful. It was yeah. terrible. <laughs> so I do um, an edit letter for myself, basically. I go through the entire book and do like the, you know, just fix what needs to be fixed. Yeah. And then this is the first time that I also did a dedicated beta reader phase. Cool. Um, I have trusted people who read my books, um, but this is the first time that I pulled like readers, like like readers who love my books. Mm. And I had five of them that's very um, cool. yeah. read through it. Okay. And that's and that's in lieu of a hiring an editor? Like so No. Okay. So so if you do hire an editor, when does, does that happen before the beta read or So what I did this time, because I was starting to get tight on time, I had my editor I have two editors. I have one editor who is like, he's actually a very good friend of mine, um, who he does like some line editing, but also like he'll read it. And I, I really trust his opinion on things like the scene just isn't working quite right. Mm. Or like, I'm confused about why this character did this thing or whatever. Okay. Yeah. So what I did this time is I had him going through it at the same time as the beta readers. Mm. Okay. And then I kind of incorporated all of their feedback at once. Cool. Yep. What I would do next time if I have the time to is, you know, I actually don't know what order I would put them in. I think I would do the beta readers first and then him 
But huh. he also gives me some like kind of beta reader-esque feedback yeah. too. So yeah. I didn't, it actually worked pretty good consolidating those things. Yeah. So then I go through it with all of their feedback. I do a whole other pass through the whole thing. And then um, I do one final read through where I'm fixing things like repetition or whatever. Um, and then it goes to the proofreader, which is where it is now. Okay. So editor who's, who's sort of inclusive of like ideas and maybe a little bit of structure and then betas or, or not necessarily in this order, but these are the, the stages in whatever order. Um, and then proofreader. Okay. Which is, or in other words, copy editor, essentially the proofreader or. He should be mostly at this point because, um, Noah, who is my, Noah's role as my, my first editor, yeah. um, is not like you, I don't know what I would ask some other editor to do. There's like not a term for what he does mm -hmm. because we're friends. So it's been like yeah. a very informal yeah. kind of like, it should be at a point with the proofreader where he's looking for like typos and grammatical errors. Like he's not even for looking at language yeah. stuff. Right. At and that if, point. And you don't even want him to give that other <laughs> feedback, I would assume anyway. Unless he found something really agarious. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but yeah. yeah, it's pretty late stage. Right. Okay. Cool. Okay. So. We've taken way more of your time than I had to plan, so I apologize for oh, that. Oh, don't it's be sorry. Like, I'm, I'm like, rambling. Uh, it's been very interesting for me. I'm, I'm curious, if, if we were to go out with a musician, I would normally ask them, you know, what song do you want to go out with? And that would be like the end. <laughs> would, if, if you were to do a reading, and I'm not, you know, our listener, listeners may or may not get to hear one, but like if you were to do one, would you do one from the book three, book one, book two? Would you have someone else read it? How, how would you approach that? So I, um, okay. So one thing I, I cannot listen to my own books. Okay. I have audiobooks out, which I meant to talk about when we were talking about streams of income uh, and I did not get there, but, um, yeah, that it is one. Okay. But, <laughs> and you don't like, so, so, so you don't like, or you at least until now you haven't liked listening to them. I can't, I can't, I can't do it. And do you think that's just because you don't want to, like you have a, you know, a voice of your character in your head and you don't want anyone else to make that voice. No, well, it's because I imagine it's what actors must feel like when they watch themselves on screen. Mm -hmm. It's like hearing someone else read my words back to me makes me like want to peel off my skin. Yeah, like okay. it, it's like, I feel like I'm going to hear things I don't like. Okay. So, so you may, that, that I, I can totally uh, relate um, and understand that you don't necessarily like hearing other people read your books. What about yourself? Could I don't you, know. Could you listen to yourself read your book? I don't know if I could. I like, for example, when you send me the link for this thing, I'm not listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> I trust you. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. I am going to leave the mistake about Wolverine in just for the record. Okay, thank you. <laughs> we all appreciate it. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, okay, well, so it sounds like we're at the we're not going to get a, a reading. But <laughs> if you're going to send out... If you want to send me out with music. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I am a big Meatloaf fan and he just passed away. I don't oh, know when this is beautiful. airing, yeah. Yeah. but as of today, he passed away yesterday. Yeah. Anything Meatloaf. Oh, I love it. Okay. Well, thank you. And we could tie it all together with that. All right. Well, yeah. Carissa Broadbent, thank you very much for joining. And uh, the name of the book coming out again? Mother of Death and Dawn. It is the oh. third book in the War of Lost Hearts trilogy. So conclusion of the series. Awesome. Okay. Looking forward to that. And thank you again. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So there you have it, our first writer on the More Art Than Science podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider rating it or writing a review.
Doing so will help others discover the podcast and ultimately helps the artists I interview find more fans. And here it is, the late, great Meatloaf. May he rest in peace. i 
Sleep on 